Let's stand because you're going to need to stretch a little bit. Um, and if this is your first time, this is kind of what Refuge does. And I've had people over the years be like, you know, you should really shorten your sermons. Uh, people can only take so much. We gather once a week under the teaching of God's word to be molded and shaped. And every single day we're binging Netflix and we're taking in so much. So it's good for us to be together and to sit under God's word, to worship together, to get these reports. And I was just thinking, it was so cool. Grace and I were sent to do pastoral ministry uh, by you guys. And we also sent Nikolai and Kent to do pastoral ministry and care. One, with people that are very close to us, part of our body. The other, with people across the world. What a cool thing, church, that you guys are part of this. That um, the money and time and um, just efforts that you have poured into here are uh, extending out throughout the globe. So praise God. All right, so we are going to be talking about the fall this morning. Um, And I'm just going to pick through Genesis chapter 2 as we do that. So, starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, I'm reading chapter 1. What am I doing here? So, chapter 2 says something similar. Good thing I caught myself. <laughs> Apparently, the set is going to be longer than it was <clears throat> supposed to be in the beginning. Okay. We're going to start here. The Lord God took the man that he had made and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord commanded him, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. And the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God makes for him the woman, Eve. We talked about that last week. When Adam sees her, he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Moses comments, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And notice this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word, you can be seated. So if this is your first time, welcome. Um, We're doing a year of reading through the Bible as a church community. We're calling it uh, the year of biblical literacy. And part of that, we're doing these mini-series along with that, uh, to kind of just talk about different themes in the Bible so we can get a good understanding of what the Bible's about. Uh, Last month, we talked about the Bible itself, its authority, its accuracy, its purpose. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but we kept talking about how the Bible is a story. That's really what it is. It's multiple books, but it's telling this one congruent story. And it's not a fairy tale, as I said last week, but a congruent true story that gives meaning and shape to our lives. And, you know, every person living today lives according to some grand narrative, some uh, meta-narrative, some worldview that they're living by that gives them shape uh, and meaning to their life and, and purpose. So, When we talk about the Bible being a true story, we mean it's the story of God. It's the story of how God created the world. It's the story telling us what happened to the world, how it fell into sin, evil, and death, and ultimately how God will redeem the world. And Christians believe that this is the true story that provides us with an understanding 
of the whole world and our place in it. And so for these next weeks, if you weren't here last week, we talked about creation. We're going through that major story, and this morning we're going to be talking about the fall. So last week, when we looked at the creation, we talked about the major themes of the creation story being this. Number one, God, Yahweh, was the unrivaled king of the universe, or is the unrivaled king of the universe. That's what Genesis 1 is really teaching us. Not about creation and evolution. Number two, creation is an act of God's goodwill and kindness. It's an act of love. Ancient people thought that the universe was created through an act of war or violence, that the gods had a war, killed one another, and used their bodies to create the sky and the earth. It's very similar, actually, to the evolutionary process that says it all comes out of death and decay and all that, and then life springs out of that. Well, the Bible says, however that process happened, it says no creation is an act of God's love. And the earth was originally intended to be the dwelling place of God and humans. It was a temple dwelling. We also saw that humans were created not as slaves to the God, not to serve their will, but again as an act of love. They were created to be covenant partners with God, to enjoy all that God had made and to enjoy fellowship with God. They were called to make the whole earth God's temple dwelling place, to spread the borders of Eden to the ends of the earth. I mentioned this last week. We aren't told in the beginning that the creation is perfect, but we are given a picture of its inherent goodness and purity. And I just read this and highlighted again. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. So what does this mean? It means there is no lack of trust there in the garden. There is no fear. There is no shame. There's nothing to hide between the man and his wife between humanity and God. It's open, it's free, it's transparent. And, and that's the idea, I think, that the writer of Genesis is trying to show us. In the beginning, there was full transparency and vulnerability, openness between humanity and between humanity and God. There was innocence. Now, this is nothing like the world today. And so the Bible seeks to answer for us what happened what happened to the world? Why is life filled with fear, distrust, guilt, shame, pain, evil, and death? What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with me? Why do humans have this incredible ability to create, to sacrifice, to love, to help, to rule, and, and have dominion over the earth, to, to harness the, the natural powers of creation, and at the same time, this incredible knack and ability to royally screw things up? Where does that come from? Where does this desire to hurt and exploit and enslave others come from? Rape, murder, lying, cheating, stealing. Where the hell does this stuff come from? And why do each of us have these desires deep down in us? If only seeds or you know, just the germ of these things that we, we push down, we don't like. We don't like the ugliness, but it's there. We know the seeds of these things are there. So this is what Genesis 3 seeks to answer for us. Why the world is filled with beauty, order, and bursting life in one breath, and absolute chaos and death in another. It seeks to answer for us what happened to God's, 
God's good creation. And so, like us, the nation of Israel, whom this book was written for, did not experience the goodness of creation. They knew evil firsthand. They knew slavery in Egypt, hard labor from dawn to dusk, no freedom of worship, and their baby boys being drowned in the Nile. Their daughters most likely being given into sex slavery, and this was taking place for over 400 years. These are the conditions that the nation of Israel was living under. They did not know a good world. They did not know a good earth. So Genesis 3 comes in to tell us how this came to be, the tension, the problem, the conflict that came into God's good world. And though we probably have so many questions, why does a snake talk, right? For one, what's Eve doing talking to the snake in the first place? Like all of these things, right? We have to suspend on those. Where's God? Where's Adam? Suspend all those and listen to what Genesis 3 wants to tell us, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning. So the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is the fall, right? We just talked about the good creation, the fall. What happened? So in the first verse of chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. And we're told that he's cunning and crafty. And it doesn't take us long to see that something or someone seems to be behind this serpent. There's a power possessing it. In Revelation 12, 9, okay, Genesis doesn't tell us anything about the serpent except he's cunning, he's crafty. And we'll go on to see his craftiness in a second. But it's later that the Apostle John identifies him, the serpent, as the Satan, the devil himself. He says he is the serpent, that dragon of old. That's who this is. And it's also interesting to note that in ancient times, the serpent was symbolic for many things, but especially known as a chaos monster. So you have God's good creation. He has brought order out of chaos and in comes the chaos monster. He sneaked in somehow. Adam and Eve were called to protect, to keep the garden, and yet this monster has come in. Now the serpent simply asks Eve a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent suggests to Eve that God is withholding from her and Adam. And what he does is he hones in on this one tree. The tree God said is dangerous. The serpent says, that's not true. That's not true. It's not dangerous. Never mind the tree of life. Never mind the rest of the garden, the whole world that God has given to them. This tree, the serpent suggests, is evidence that God is keeping something from them. God is not actually being the generous one he pretends to be. He's withholding. God is withholding God. God himself, he says, knows that if you eat from this tree, you will be like him. 
And that's why he keeps you from it. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Sadly, in this narrative, Eve talks about God rather than talking to God. Side note, church, try not to talk about God. Do what the Psalms tell us to do. Go to God with your questions, with your anger, with your frustration, with your disillusionment. Bring it to God. Don't talk about God. I mean, fellowship, talk about God, but don't, don't talk about God without talking to God. I think that this is a key mistake. Why, you know, why doesn't Eve go, God, hey, the snake's talking to me right now. You know, like, we'd be, who knows what we'd be doing, <laughs> right? She talks about God rather than talks to God. She buys into what the serpent has suggested, and then his poisonous words of doubt work their magic. And it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I just want to point out something very interesting here. So far in the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, God is the one and the only one who has seen and judged what is good. We're told this seven times, different variations of this phrase, and God saw and he said, it is good. God sees something, sees what he has made, and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, and then culminating with the man and the woman, it is very good. But here in chapter 3, it is Eve who is seeing and judging what is good for herself. No longer is God the authority. First of all, the serpent is. But then he moves into the background and Eve becomes the authority. She is the one seeing. She is the one making the judgment call. Taking and giving. Just as God took and gave to Adam. Eve is taking and giving to Adam. She's in this place of authority. That's, I think, what Genesis is trying to show us here. Adam and Eve in this are directly rejecting God's authority and distrusting his word, and they've chosen rather to listen to the serpent and taken his word as authoritative. Now listen to this. This comes from All, all these theologians have the funniest names, right? It's T. Desmond Alexander. I wish my parents would have named me something like that. T. Although God intended the human couple to rule over all the creatures, on this occasion they obey one of the animals. By following the serpent's prompting, they fail to exercise authority over it. Their failure not only overturns the divinely instituted order of creation, man and woman over beast, but also significantly is a blatant betrayal of God. By siding with the serpent, they reject God and his ordering of the world. Ironically, their treachery occurs in the context of the serpent saying to them that they shall become like God, knowing good from evil. Unlike the serpent, the human couple have been made in the image of God. However, by obeying the serpent instead of God, they forfeit this position as God's vice regents. If they image anyone now, it is the serpent. And the authority given to them by God passes to the serpent. 
Now, I was thinking about this all week, and I just kept thinking about another story in the Bible, very similar to this one, and I think it gives us some insight. This time, though, and by the way, the Bible tells the story of the temptation in the garden again and again and again and again. If you were able to read it in Hebrew, you would say that the writers use the same language, the same nouns, the same verbs, because they're, they're purposefully retelling the story of how humans, every human being basically does this, puts themselves in the place of God bucks God's authority over their lives. So a similar story. In this one, though, it's a man who sees something that delights him, and he judges that it is good, and he takes it for himself. And here I'm talking about the story of King David and Bathsheba. Remember that? He's on the roof at night, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. She's naked. And instead of like turning away, being like, no, I'm married, I've got all this, I've got the kingdom, I've got all this, I'm, I'm the king, this is the way I should live, under God, God has blessed me, and his, he's given me so much. Instead of doing any of that, David sees, and he likes what he sees, and so what does he do? He takes it, and he partakes of it. Now, in the t- process of time, David covers up his sin um, by actually having her husband murdered, and then he looks like this benevolent king that takes Bathsheba to himself, you know, and takes her under his wing. She has this child. But then David's sin is exposed by the prophet Nathan, and David confesses his sin, but he says something so interesting, you guys. He says in Psalm 51, this is in reference to the event, he says to God, against you, And you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this is kind of shocking, right? Like, uh, excuse me, David, I think Uriah might have a few words to say about being sinned against. Bathsheba might have something to say. The nation of Israel might have something to say about the way that their king rules. But what David is really showing to us is that the sin under every other sin is the sin of cosmic treason. Luther, Martin Luther, he really developed this. So what do I mean by this? Well, before David could have slept with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, he first had to say something like this. God, I don't believe you have my best interest in mind. And I know what is better for me than you do. David here puts himself in the place of God. David decided for himself what was good, disregarded God's law, and satisfied his own Desire. See, David failed to believe what God wanted, that God wanted good for him. That God had met his needs and would continue to meet his needs. So, David took for himself what he thought was good and satisfied his own desire. This is essentially the same thing that Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve took of the fruit, they first committed the sin of unbelief in the goodness and love and provision of God. That's what the the snake's poisonous words did. They tainted their view of God. Distrust. The original sin, I think, really was a character assassination of God. But here, again, I said, you know, the the Bible tells this story again and again in such a way, right? Right? This is our story. We've all done this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we, people cheat on their tax forms, right? Why do we do this? 
Well, because they're sinners. Yeah, well, it's deeper than that, okay? So why does, you know, why does our sin take this form? Luther would answer, because the man cheated because he was making money and possessions and status and comfort from having more of them more important than God in his favor. I have to secure this for myself because God hasn't given me enough, because God won't do for me what I actually need. Why do we lie to people? Because we want people to believe the best about us. We want to keep faith. And so we, we keep um, the approval of people. It's more important to us than open honesty before God. Again, we make an idol out of these things. It's the reason why we steal. It's because we don't trust in God's provision for our lives, and we value the stuff of others, right? We go from I like to I want to I must have at all costs and to the point of making it art. And the Bible doesn't consider idolatry to be one sin of primitive people living back in Bible times, but it really considers it to be the sin under every other sin. We choose something as more valuable than God. Something is more trustworthy than God. What he's provided. What he has provided and what, you know, what the Bible describes as his goodness. All our failures to trust God wholly or to live rightly at their root, their idolatry. Something we make more important to God. Now, let's talk a little bit about what this has done to the world, Right? So we, so we read, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what is this, right? First, in Genesis 2, we have the man and his wife are naked, and there's no shame. There's nothing. There's nothing to hide. They're open and free, like freer than hippies in Katati, in the nudist colony that was there, right? They are free, And now, their eyes are open. They've always been naked, but now they see it. There's something that's repulsive about it. There's something that's fearful about it. They feel anxiety. They feel shame and guilt, right? What is this? The Bible says this is what sin does. Sin, disobedience, rebellion against God brings discord. Guys, no one tells them they're naked. They just know it intuitively. They don't even tell each other they're naked. They just know. It's this gut feeling. It's just this sense. They're exposed. And the first thing they try to do is hide it. So think about us, right? Why do each of us feel shame and guilt? Maybe you grew up in a very accepting and affirming home, right? Never ashamed about uh, your appearance or anything that you did by your parents or by your peers, right? But still, every human feels disconnected from ourselves. We feel disconnected from others. 
Why do things, especially relationships, fall apart and bring heartache? Have you ever done that thing where, like, you have a really good friend, but then you don't see them over time? And so you're going to maybe, you know, get back together with them. You're traveling. You're going to stop by and see And you start, like, doubting the relationship. And you start reading into it and thinking that maybe you're not as close as you once thought you were. And you start thinking all these things about it, right? And, like, uh, trying to justify, you know, why you did this and why you haven't stayed in touch and all these things, right? Why does that stuff happen to us? Why do we go there because we're disconnected from one another just naturally that's just what happens to us and all of this these feelings of guilt and ought come in why aren't we what we should be and why do we know that too we know that there's some sort of standard And the Bible's answer is sin. And I know that word has so much baggage that it carries. And and, and some of that baggage isn't even found in the Bible. So let's talk about that for a second, right? Sometimes we only talk about sin in the context of transgression or breaking the rules. So we need to talk about that. So many today, uh, you know, you say the word sin and it's like, give me a break. You know, this is like ancient Judeo-Christian, like, nonsense, uh, primitive, outdated, oppressive, and offensive dogma. But what is the one thing that almost all humans and cultures agree upon? That something is wrong <laughs> with the world. And something is wrong with us. After centuries of attempts at utopia through kingdoms and nations, monarchs, politicians, religions, pseudo-saviors, our world is still royally screwed up, right? Even though we're living right now in one of the safest times in human history, people are riddled with fear and anxiety. Economists know the world is messed up. Psychologists know it. Doctors know it. Teachers know it. Parents know it. Everyone knows it, right? We all know this. Your dentist knows it, right? (laughs) Without believing in the biblical doctrine of sin, though, you can't really make sense of the world around you. So let's talk about what does the Bible actually say about sin? Well, again, in Psalm 51, very insightful psalm, David describes sin in three ways. This is super helpful for me, uh, just as a pastor. Number one, David says, he talks about his iniquity. So what is iniquity? Because that's the way the Bible describes sin. Iniquity is self-absorption. It's the Bible's way of telling us that we're curved in on ourselves. Iniquity means bent or twisted. It's an inner warp of the fallen nature. We're crooked. We're evil. It just, you know, and it's not that we go around, you know, like we're like, you know, like that caricature just of like nastiness or something, you know, that you might see like, you know, like in Mean Girls or something like that. I don't mean like modern, like what do you talk about with this, right? I don't know, like Despicable Me, you know, like the guy in that. I'm a dad, okay, so give me a break. Despicable me, I've seen them all, okay, people? Gru is a nasty man, and he knows it, and he gets off on it. Like, it's like this pleasure to be nasty, right? It's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about this inner twistedness, though, this darkness that delights when our enemy hurts, that thinks often the worst of people, that imagines perverse and awful things. 
It's also, you, you ever have those friends that everything is going super well for them and all of a sudden they just sabotage their life? I had this one friend, I won't say his name in case he ever listens to this, but he would do this thing where he'd you know, get in a relationship with a really nice girl, really liked him, and all of us are like, wow, she likes you. Like, that's amazing, you know? Uh, we were really good friends. Um, really affirming. But he would do this thing every time. He would just sabotage himself. And to me, it was just like pff, iniquity, inner twistedness. Like, you know, just like, why? Who knows? The second way the Bible describes sin is the word transgression. This is one maybe a little more um, known by us, but it's rebellion and self Will It refers to stubbornness and willfulness, but because we are twisted inwardly, it's always negative. We say the heart wants what the heart wants. We're bent on things that destroy us, giving our hearts to things that we know won't satisfy us. We're bent on our own will, our own way, ourselves as authority. We see signs that say, do not trespass, and what do we do? Right? Your spouse or parent says, don't do that or say that. And what? We want to do it even more. Never forget, Grace and I were dating. She's not in here right now, so I can tell the story. We were dating, and I was bringing her up to Santa Rosa for the first time. I wanted to show her, you know, like where I lived, what I did. And we're driving through um, Kettleman City. Kettleman City? No, Harris Ranch. And so we're, you know, we're driving, and it was a nice day, and so, but we're driving, and I roll the windows up, you know, I turn on the, the, you know, circulation air, you know, don't want anything coming in, and she's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, man, Harris Ranch smells so bad, like, you, whatever you do, don't roll down your window. She goes, Bang! you know, just puts it all the way down, and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, are you crazy? It was just like the most appalling thing. Like, wait, I'm in love with this girl. What's happening right now, you know? But just like, it was such a snapshot. It was just like, I do what I want when I want. No one tells me what to do. And we've been doing this now for 12 years. Um, back and forth, right? I'm, I cannot tell you. Grace will tell me to do something a certain way. And I'm just like, screw you. Like, No. Why? I don't know. Just because. And like, even more so, it's like, just because you said it now, I want to do it even more. Like, what is that? Rebellion and self-will. The third, th- third thing the Bible says describes a sin is the word sin itself. And this is a word that has just been misconstrued again and again and again. But literally, the word is Failure. It was an archer's term that meant to miss the target or to get it wrong. And it's the Bible's way of saying humans are not what we should be or what we were supposed to be. We fail, we mess up, we get things wrong, accidents happen, and some of these are, uh, have huge ramifications, right? Life and death situations, ruining lives. Where does this come from? sin. We're not what we should be. We failed. And we do it daily. We don't live up 
to what God intended us for. And these three things, iniquity, transgression, and sin, make the world a miserable place. And sin in all its categories is what separates us from God, from one another, and from ourselves, right? Just like this inner disconnectedness and also from our relationship to the natural world. That is what the Bible is describing to us. Their eyes were open. They saw. They were naked. And there was shame. They knew we're not what we should be. The guilt, the shame, it was all there. Because this is what sin does in our lives. So the next movement in the story is that they lose paradise, right? But I think what we see here in this is judgment and the grace of God. And so I just want to walk you through the rest of this, and then we'll close. And it's always so interesting to me to actually read God's response and questions to Adam and Eve. So that's the way I, I kind of want to frame this for you. So God, right? This is what God says. It's almost like a play. God, where are you? Now, question, is there any accusation there? There are you? You know, it's like, no, where are you? Do you read anger into that? Where are you? I don't think you should. I think God is inviting confession. Where are you? Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. It's an identity statement. And I hid myself. God, you are naked. Nope. Who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I told you not to eat? Again, God invites confession a second time. Adam, here we go. The woman that you gave to me, or excuse me, that you gave to be with me. Like, I didn't ask for this. Seriously, it's like, come on. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Like, wasn't me. No responsibility, everybody's fault except for Adam's. God to Eve, what is this that you've done? Eve, the serpent. Like, who's guilty? Nobody. It's, no, nobody is taking responsibility in this scenario. So then God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. That is a a term of shame and being brought low, to eat the dust, to be put down all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in, not childbearing, ladies, child-rearing is actually the word. And in pain you shall bring forth children. So there will be discord in the family with the children and with the husband. Listen, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
discord struggle. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Now the problem here isn't that Adam is over his wife, right? This isn't like male chauvinism. How dare you listen to a woman, Adam? No, Adam exchanges the authority of God for the authority of a human. It's never what he was supposed to do. Because you have listened to someone other than me, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the Adama. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return it's interesting, his name means earth. You came from the earth, and to the earth you shall return. It says, And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and covered their nakedness. And then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand, and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If Genesis 1 and 2 teach that God is king, Genesis 3 shows how humanity rejected God's kingship and how humans disobey and rebel. If Genesis 1 and 2 show the earth is God's good kingdom, Genesis 3 shows humans corrupting it with sin, bringing it under a curse, and handing their authority over to the serpent. We don't have the time, but you've been doing the reading. You see how it culminates, right? It, it begins with Adam and Eve, but then Cain is born, right? And, and Eve, she uses this language like, I got a man from the Lord. This is the snake crusher. No, he's not. He's the human killer. The brother killer is who he is. And you begin to see evil progress. And then Cain's descendants, they uh, cultivate art, but they also cultivate violence. And this culminates in Genesis 6, where every intention and thought of humanity is continually evil. And so God was sad that he had made humans. He was sad because of what humans had become. If Genesis 1 and 2 shows humanity created to be covenant partners with God, Genesis 3 shows human rebellion, human autonomy, working chaos into God's creation and suspicion of God's goodness and intention. Their sin brings about removal from God's presence, loss of their authority, and ability to rule in the way God intended. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, doesn't that sound harsh? Like, whoa, God, cursed? Yeah, maybe it, maybe it is. Maybe it is harsh. It is the opposite of blessing. It is to allow chaos instead of order, and it seems to be a reversal of the created order. Instead of life, death. Instead of ease, futility. But such is the state outside the presence and authority of God who is life beauty, and order. God's judgment of human rebellion is a reversal 
of the blessings of paradise. And God's judgment of sin means banishment from the full presence of the holy God. And it introduces pain in the family, pain and struggle in marriage, pain and struggle in life, and sweat and painful toil, it says, does the ground produce for you. And then finally, death. Mark Sayers, in his book, Strange Days, he says this, because humans are spiritually homeless, We dream of holy spaces, utopias, motherlands, golden ages, and soulmates. We yearn for reconnection to the divine, readmittance to the sacred and pure space. This wandering, this lostness, is the essence of humanity's essential weakness. Detachment from our true home in God, and with that, the curse of mortality. And yet... There's this faint glimmer of hope. For in the midst of judgment, God shows his amazing grace. In verse 15, we have what Christians have called for centuries the Proto Evangelion. The Proto Evangelion. The gospel before the gospel. The good news proclaimed to Adam and Eve about the seed of the woman the snake crusher who would come and destroy the serpent and yet would be wounded in his victory. I think modern people, including Christians, see the world backwards. And this dawned on me this week when Grace and I, we were with Rick and Christina. When we're faced with sickness, disease, breakdown, separation, divorce, death, and the worst experiences in this world, our questions are, why, God? Why have you done this? The answer is, he hasn't. God didn't do this. And in fact, God in his grace broke up the unholy alliance of humans and the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This alliance is not happening. And though humans rejected God as their king, spurned his goodness and love, allied with the serpent and destroyed God's good earth with evil, brokenness, and death, God refuses to go away. He refuses to leave us on our own. He breaks in again and again. He blesses us with rain and food, gladness, the joys of friendship and companionship, children, family, love, sex, beauty, transcendence. Reading Genesis 3, it should be a wonder to us that anything good happens in this life at all. That's what we, that's what we should take away. Like God shows him the blackness and then he pierces in with this gospel, this good news. I will not leave you alone. I will send the snake crusher. And he clothes them. God I mean, you think about the narrative of the Bible, right? God bends to bless us. He loves us. He refuses to give up on us. He hears the cries of his creation. 
suffering under the weight of sin, and it breaks his heart, we're told, again and again and again in the scripture. In Exodus, I have heard the cries of my people, and I have come down to deliver them. He condescends, he bends to carry us up. He cannot let it be so. And finally, God does the unthinkable. He comes to earth himself in the person of Jesus to bear the curse, to gather up in his body all the sin, evil, and brokenness of the world, and then allow all the judgment of righteous judgment of God on sin to come upon him in order that the world might be cleansed and restored as God's good creation to usher in the new creation. So one day, when God makes all things new and gets rid of all the evil, sin, and brokenness and sadness in the world, he can do it without having to remove us also. Jesus takes it for us. I've told this story before. It's one of my favorites. Scottish proverb. It's one of my favorite Scottish proverbs. I only know one. Um, (laughs) It's about the fox and the fleas. Uh, In Scotland, the fox who has fleas will go along the hedgerow where the sheep and the goats are kept. And he will collect, or she will collect in their mouth, all the wool from the sheep that's just been caught in the thorns or caught on the rocks. He'll collect it and he'll make a little ball in its mouth. And then what, is it, what it does is it goes down to the river. And we're talking Scotland, right? The highlands, it's freezing cold glacier, probably water. And it goes down to the river and slowly begins to go into the river. And as it does that, all the fleas begin to crawl up the body, moving its way up. And the fox will just slowly ease in until all the fleas culminate in that ball of yarn. And at the last moment, the fox will dip its head under the water and the ball of yarn will wash away and be gone. And it's cleansed of all of its fleas. That is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He was put under the deathly cold waters of judgment. He took in himself all the disease and sickness and pain of the world. He gathered it up in himself and he nailed it to the cross. He killed it there. It's been removed. It's been washed away. And now in Christ, there is no shame. There is no guilt. And this is the invitation of the New Testament again and again. You guys, we can be exposed to one another. We can be transparent and vulnerable because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We can be naked and unashamed again as we were intended to. And the day's coming when God will make all things new. And we'll all be nudist, right? <laughs> but this is what Jesus has done for us. Skeptics can use evil and suffering as a stone against Christianity, but the question is what comfort, what consolation do they have in their own worldview? Christianity is, in fact, the only religion or worldview that has an answer to evil and suffering. God did not create it. They are enemy intruders into God's good creation. And God has done and is doing something about suffering and evil in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eastern religions ignore evil. I know that I'm being simple. 
Darwinism and communism rely on it. Survival of the fittest. Atheism is clueless about it. There's no answer. And Islam has a superficial view of it. Only Christianity provides an answer that we are living in an abnormal world which God will one day restore. And next week we will begin to see the movement of God, how he begins to redeem his world and restore his creation through the family of Abraham. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without witness. You haven't left us to figure it out on our own. But you have recorded for us your story. So we might know the true story of the world, so that we might understand who you are and who we are in light of that, and so that we might respond to you and we might respond to your grace. And so, Lord, would we do that this morning? Lord, would this not be for us just an ancient tale, timeless wisdom? Would it be the good news that is able to save our souls? Would it be that word of God that is able to bring new life, to bring creation and order out of chaos for us? to bring cleansing and healing from our shame and our brokenness. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and you suffered something that was not yours to suffer. That you took upon yourself a load that was not yours to bear. That you who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. Lord, how good, how kind, how generous you are, how great is your name, Lord. There's no other name like the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would cling to that good news in Jesus. We would take it deep into our being. Carry it with us as we go from here. That we would spread it around. What Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done for the world. And that you will one day make all things new again. You make everything sad come untrue. Thank you, Lord.